The Charles Adler Show starts now. Bringing down my uh, bud, uh, Max Fawcett from the National Observer in, in just a moment. One of the, in my opinion, uh, top national pundits. And one of the things I'm going to get into with, with Max is, is why the professional pundit class, and that would include Max, uh, cares so much more about prime ministerial cabinet shuffles than the, the rest of the country. Not being sarcastic, I am, I've always been curious about this. I've always had a hard time keeping my eyes open for cabinet shuffles, but the professional pundits, they, they, they really go after it. So I want to find out what it is that's on their mind. And of course, I want to talk about uh, a number of other things as well. Uh, polling these days indicates that uh, Polyev is just kicking the crap out of Justin Trudeau. For some of us, that's difficult to understand is that really about polyev is it is it more about um, where, the, where the country's at right now the dog days of summer etc cetera, etc cetera. but before we do that i just want to thank all the people who have been tuning in to the podcast for a project that is near and dear to my heart for many many years i had a tough time listening to radio newscasts and television newscasts they all seemed really long to me they all seemed uh less than relevant they all seemed overwritten overdone and so one of the things that, that I've done from, from time to time over the years is a, uh, a tight uh, newscast containing only stories that I believed actually mattered. And so I've decided to call this one Three Minutes That Matter. And I'm going to thank those of you who have been sampling it. It's on the podcast. I'm going to get it on as many days of the week as, uh, as possible. Three Minutes That Matter. And now all that matters is bringing on our special guest from Calgary, Max Fawcett of the National Observer. Max, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Charles. So, Max, let me get into the head of a pundit because, you know, clearly the the pundits' heads are wired a little differently uh, than uh, those of us who are uh, call us, uh, you know, consumers of news, ordinary uh, Canadian-American citizens. Why are pundits so absorbed, fascinated, with cabinet shuffles, and I'll just uh, load the barrel a little bit here, when they involve people who are generic to the Canadian population, very few people can even name uh, more than one or two cabinet ministers at best, but the pundits think that specifically who the ministers are and how they get shuffled are a big deal. I just want to take take my face away from uh, the volume and give you as much time on this as possible because I'm I'm truly fascinated in the in the in the in the wiring of the pundit's mind here. There must be something about cabinet shuffles that most of us are missing. Well, I would call most of us, uh, and that being the non-pundit class, normal, uh, and so they don't in the middle of their summer. Uh, you know, get agitated about who the Minister of Veterans Affairs is or who the, you know, who's been shuffled where because they have better things to do. Um, and I and I don't begrudge them for that. I, I think of it as sort of the political pundit class's version of fantasy sports, right? You know how people get really excited about fantasy baseball or fantasy hockey. Oh, look who I've got on my team and I'm going to trade this person for that person. And cabinet shuffles feel like, you know, fantasy politics uh, where you get to kind of... Uh, in, in the fantasy world, they call it roster baiting, uh, which I'm sure people can figure out what that portmanteau means. But, you know, you imagine, well, what if this person goes there? What if this person goes here? What will that mean for this other person? And, you know, it, it really kind of gets the creative juices flowing. Um, and, and I think summer cabinet shuffles are particularly 
sort of fruitful for this because there's not a whole lot going on. Um, as a pundit, you need to keep putting out punditry, right? That's sort of one of the one of the challenges of it is you you always have to have an opinion about something. And and when things slow down in the summer, the house isn't sitting. Um, you you kind of grasp for straws a little bit. Uh, not the case here in Alberta, as I've said before, but that's that's a bit of a unique situation. But in Ottawa, for sure, uh, you know, you run out of things to think about and write about. So yeah, cabinet shuffle. It's so much material. Um, it's so much, you know, uh, imagining what abouting, you know, does what does this mean for so and so's leadership ambitions? Is the prime minister in trouble? Blah blah blah. Um, and, and you know, at the end of the day, content is king, and and that's what these things provide. But as you said, for for most people who who truly can't name uh, a cabinet minister or two beyond our finance minister, maybe um, it just doesn't matter. And Honestly, that's probably the right take, um, especially in a government that is as top down as this one is. And, and they, you know, they, they've all been getting progressively more top down. So it's not like this is a thing that is unique to Justin Trudeau. But his, but his government is very much run out of the prime minister's office. And so, you know, when I was in politics uh, back in the early 2000s, if you were a cabinet minister, you had your own team. You got to choose who your chief of staff was. You got to choose who your director of legislative affairs was. That is no longer the case. The prime minister's office gives you your roster of, of staffers and says, go forth and carry this message. So, you know, it really doesn't, in some respects, matter that much uh, if someone gets shuffled from ministry A to ministry B, because the only shuffle that really counts, the only shuffle that would change the way things are are. Uh, felt in this country is is the prime minister and he didn't get shuffled by the way can we um lay something to waste and if i'm wrong about this just to tell me i'm wrong but i i think some people have this impression that if you're the head of the transport department you're the person who's making the trains run on time and if you're the head of energy you're, you're the person who's making sure that uh, our various energy patches are, are operating uh, properly, uh, finance. That the, I just have a feeling that, that people think that these people, because they're heads of departments, are actually running the departments. Do you mind getting into the entrails a little bit and, and tell us how the, how the bureaucracy works so that uh, we understand the difference between a minister and the department and how the departments actually run? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think it used to be the case that cabinet ministers had a lot more authority and um, influence over the decisions that were made under their office and in their department. I mean, you think back to uh, Paul Martin as finance minister, he had a pretty free hand in running the most important department in the government. But, you know, in this day and age, certainly things are much more tightly controlled from the top. And then you have the bureaucracy of deputy ministers who are sort of the, you know, the head of the bureaucratic arm of a department. And they're the ones they've been there much longer than any cabinet minister ever would be. You know, cabinet ministers come and go. They're there for a year. They're there for two years. If they're really good at their jobs and it's a really important job, maybe they're there for four or five. Deputy ministers, you know, senior public servants, oftentimes have been in their departments for decades. Um, they know where all the bodies are buried. They know where all the levers that you need to pull are. And oftentimes they won't tell their minister um, where the levers and the bodies are because they want to maintain some, some influence and control. So, you know, I think there is this perception that cabinet ministers sort of, you know, say jump and the, the stat, the public service staff says how high oftentimes the, the public servants are there as a break on the, the minister as much as they are the gas. And 
that's not necessarily a bad thing. That is that is kind of, in some respects, how public servants see their role is is not to slow down gov- uh, political decisions, but to sort of act as the the responsible governor on potentially um, in the moment decision making. You know, they are the ones who will be there after the minister is gone, even if there's a change of government. And they feel a certain responsibility to the work and to the the people they're serving. And so they they have a tendency to want to slow things down. They have a tendency to want to really kind of make sure things go at a more deliberate pace. And that can really frustrate political cabinet ministers who who want to put their mark on things, who want to see things go quickly. But that sort of push and pull is is uh, just a part of the dynamic of governing it, and it always has been, and it always will be. Um, you know, I think it's tempting. For some politicians, certainly more on the right than the than the progressive left, to kind of dump on the public service and say that they don't do anything valuable. They're just you know collecting paychecks. We have too many, uh, you know, we have too many public servants. But look, government is the sort of most complex and largest uh, machine that we have in society. You know, it 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 is more complex than a corporation. It is more is bigger than a corporation, and it requires people to operate it. Uh, and we should want those people to be good at their jobs. So when a guy like Marco Mendocino, now the former public safety minister, reacts to Bernardo's transfer from maximum to medium, reacts as if he's a spectator, he's outraged, he's angry, and people are asking the question, wait a minute, you're the, you're the minister. You're not supposed to be the spectator. You're supposed to, be, you're supposed to know what's going on in your own department. Was that the cat being let out of the bag? Was he just making it obvious that many cabinet ministers indeed don't know what's going on inside? Not to that level. Um, I mean, I, that was that was sort of political malpractice on his part, um, and I think he lost his job. His job for I think a very good reason. You you should always know what's happening in your department. That's why you have staffers. That's why you know you pay people to be in your office, and and it is their job to let you know. But Ultimately, the deal that you make when you become a cabinet minister, when you get sworn into the Privy Council, is you take responsibility for everything that happens under your department's nameplate. You might, maybe there is things that you don't know are happening. Certainly at the lower levels, uh, there, there are. Not everything rises to the attention of the minister. But at the end of the day, if something goes wrong, you're the one whose name uh, gets gets signed over on it and your head goes on the stick. That's, that's the deal. You get a driver, you get a, a pay bump. And if things go badly, you have to wear it. You know, on the Bernardo thing, uh, the mistake he made, number one, was, I think, not knowing. Um, and maybe he had staffers who were too young to know about Paul Bernardo, which is and just blows the mind, but, but whatever. But the biggest mistake he made was he pretended like it was okay for him to get involved in decisions at the level of Correction Services Canada. What he should have said was, look, it's not my job as the minister to say whether person A should go to facility B. We don't want politicians getting involved in the administration of justice. That is a that way lies madness. That way lies what's happening in the United States right now. So am I am I frustrated that that this decision is being made? Sure. But it's not my job as the minister to tell the government to tell Corrections Canada where they should or shouldn't be putting Paul Bernardo because that would be a very very slippery slope. That was the case he should have made. And it wasn't the one that he did. So when you look at the cabinet, Justin Trudeau notwithstanding, in your opinion, Max Fawcett, who looks like a prime minister? 
These days, it's a short list, unfortunately, I got to say. I mean, I remember back in my day, uh, which I get to say now, um, there were people in Chrétien's cabinet, multiple people, who looked like they would be competent, even inspiring prime ministers, um, because he tolerated strength uh, around him. He actually encouraged it. He wanted his ministers to be good and strong and capable and go out and be seen to be uh, sort of their own people. Nowadays, I, I, that's just not the case. Um, you know, I think for a long time, people talked about Christian Freeland like that. But right now, um, you know, the way she communicates about, about bread and butter finance issues, I don't think that she is up for the job. I don't think that she would win in an election. I don't think that her, her star is, uh, you know, is on the rise. I think Anita Anand, who was shifted into Treasury Board, and, and there's a whole sort of conversation about that, she looks very impressive to me. Um, she, you know, she comes, she has a very, very impressive background, ironically quite similar to Pierre Trudeau's background, you know, academic, not interested in politics and kind of got dragged into it uh, later in life. But, you know, she, she did the procurement thing for the vaccines, did it really well. Then she went into defense and defense is a graveyard for people's political careers. And, and she actually, by all accounts, did a pretty darn good job of it in a, in a very difficult situation, trying to change the culture around sexual abuse and, and sort of issues in the services. And now she's being put in Treasury Board. And I've, I've seen a lot of people saying, well, that's the end of her career because nothing good happens in Treasury Board. But Treasury Board is the administration of government. You know, it, it, it is things like the Phoenix pay system, which was a fiasco under the previous government and the current government. It's uh, sort of the administration of uh, government money. And, and I think she can do good work there. And if she does good work there, look, if people are looking for a serious liberal leader, someone who maybe isn't flash, isn't uh, personality, but is actually able to do the work of government and governing, I can't think of a better person than Anita Anand for that. Um, Seamus O'Regan also impresses me. I know that the, he's getting some heat on how he handled the, the port strike in Vancouver, but I actually think he handled it pretty well. He let the situation play out. He didn't force uh, the workers back to work immediately and, and kind of let them overplay their hand on voting down a number of negotiated settlements. And now he is going to order them back to work. And, and I think you'll have the support of a lot of people for that. He's a good communicator. Uh, you know, he gets he gets energy. He gets uh, finance, but he also gets social issues. Um, you know, I think he's impressive and we'll see what Sean Fraser does in housing. Uh, you know, he's, he's been touted as a very sort of promising up and coming guy. If he can get his head around, if he can get the government's head around the housing issue. I mean, I think that's a, that's a, that's a very short walk to 24 Sussex, but that's a big lift, uh, because I think it's much more likely he doesn't get the housing situation solved. And then that's the end of his career, I think. So if you were to ask me a number of years ago, before we had this housing affordability crisis, uh, which government is most connected uh, to a healthy housing industry? I mean, healthy, not just in terms of making sure the developers are, are making money, uh, but that uh, consumers are getting a, 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 decent, uh, a, a, a decent shot at owning their own home. If you had asked me which government is closest to that, I would have thought local governments, you know, municipal and provincial. I mean, when I think about municipal, I think municipal governments are the ones most responsible for the fact that a lot of housing, whether it's high-rise condos or anything else, 
the reason many of them don't get built in, in certain areas is because the people in those areas show up at uh, city council meetings, or at least the more active ones show up, and stop development from happening. That, because in my everyday life, especially as just a, an honest shoe leather journalist from the old days, that's what I saw. Never would have said, it's the federal government. So help me understand this. Why, why is Ottawa all of a sudden uh, in charge of whether or not uh, supply meets demand in housing? Yeah, I think there's a couple of reasons why. Um, you know, I, it was interesting. So the prime minister is getting um, uprated for, for comments he made the other day that, that housing is not a primary federal responsibility. I, I tweeted that I thought that quote would come back to haunt him. It's already being used in conservative ads. Um, I, I think when you've been in government as long as they have, you, you know, you have more tenure on this issue than anyone else. All the provincial governments, uh, to my knowledge, if I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think if I can miss one, but they've all changed uh, in the years since the federal liberals were elected. Certainly all the local governments have mostly changed. The feds are the only ones who have been here the whole time. Um, and so they've had line of sight on this issue for a long time. And, you know, ultimately that bag is being passed upwards in part because the feds com have com communicated numbers of times that they take this seriously, that they have ambition, they're going to spend all this money. And yet the results that Canadians are seeing are, are getting worse by the day. Um, so I think that's part of it. Part of it is that I think it's becoming cle increasingly clear. I mean, it was clear to me a long time ago, but local governments can't handle this. They are, they are so beholden to the noisy kind of local community groups, the NIMBYs, the you know people who don't want anything new in their neighborhood. Oh goodness, don't don't build anything big around me because it'll change the character of my neighborhood. You know, I remember having you know grown up in Vancouver and watched Vancouver politics for a long time. I mean, those people run the show, and they have for years. Well, that, that, that's why that's why I mentioned it, Max, because in my life, like I say, it's just a, it, many years ago as a young journalist, that's what I used to see at council meetings. Didn't matter which city I'm, I'm talking about. All of them had the, as you call the NIMBY, the not in my backyard, the activist groups who, in the in the interest of keeping their neighborhoods pristine, exactly the same as they found them 30 or 40, 50 years ago, did not want development to happen. And that's why it never occurred to me in those days that someday somebody would say, "Well, this is Ottawa's deal." Well, I think I think Ottawa's role is often to broker um, deals or or to or to clear blockades uh, in in sort of governance issues because they ultimately have the biggest they have the biggest purse you know they have the spending power um, certainly more than municipalities and more than provinces um, and they have more leverage uh, to clear these sorts of things so you know if if this is a concern for them uh, then they have tools at their disposal to incentivize local governments and provincial governments to get off their asses. And they haven't used those so far. Um, you know, the, the, the prime minister yesterday was at an announcement where he made the sort of the ill-fated comments. He was announcing 217 new homes. Uh, why would you bring the prime minister to talk at an announcement of 217 homes? It, it's almost insulting, uh, the degree to which they don't get the seriousness of this. And, and you know, it's interesting, the, the feds, Certainly this party, the, the Trudeau liberals, have they swept to power on the back of young people and the support of young people. And I think they have stayed in power largely at the behest of young voters, you know, voters in their 30s, voters in their early 40s, certainly voters in their 20s. And they are behaving on this issue that is so crucial to that demographic, like they don't really care 
uh, it really does start to raise some questions of basic political competence. So I think, you know, you know yes, in terms of sort of strict division of powers, um, municipalities are creatures of the province and housing tends to fall to those two. But we shouldn't forget that the federal government was very actively involved in housing in the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, I grew up in cooperative housing in Falls Creek that was built basically entirely by the federal government, that, federal cooperative housing units. Um, and the feds had a, a massive co-op uh, investment and, and involvement that they backed away from in the 80s under Mulroney and then eventually kind of scrapped in the 90s under under the Chrétien liberals. So it's not as though the federal government hasn't been involved in housing. It's not as though the federal government can't get involved. It's that the federal government right now is still choosing to stay out of it. Um, and I think if they want to get reelected, they need to go all in. They need to, in the same way that they put their entire weight behind the COVID response in terms of, you know, getting money out the door to, to individuals and, and businesses, they moved mountains. Uh, they, they proved to Canadians that when, when they want to, they can move mountains. Well, it's time to move some mountains again, uh, because if they don't, and if they don't move those mountains tomorrow, uh, they are going to lose the next election. Uh, and, you know, uh, maybe that's okay for them. I don't know. But it, it really doesn't feel to me like they grasp the urgency of this issue uh, for Canadians and for them. One of the reasons it's difficult for me to sort of imbibe the idea that they don't grasp it is because immigration is such a big part of the liberal agenda, not just in terms of bringing in about half a million new people a year, but about constantly pointing out that the Conservatives are not immigration friendly. This has been sort of liberal gospel for, for many years now. Well, you've got a situation here where you're, you're going to create a lot of people who are hostile to immigration, not because of racism and the, the usual reasons that we've talked about for, for many years, but simply, once again, supply and demand. You want to bring in a half a million new people a year. If you don't have enough housing, you're going to have a real bottleneck problem. And saying that housing isn't your major bailiwick isn't going to get you out of it. It will become the kind of soundbite that Max Fawcett on, on Twitter earlier today said was giving the opponent live ammunition. Do you think there's something about uh, half a million new people need new housing that the Canadian government doesn't really understand? It's hard to believe that they couldn't see it, but you have to kind of judge them by their actions. And it really seems like they're setting this up to be the same conversation we've had before where, you know, they say, hey, we're, you know, we're, we love, we're pro-immigration, we, we love diversity, and, and the Conservatives don't. And I think they're missing a shifting mood. I've written about this, that, you know, there's a lot of people I know in Vancouver, Toronto, who are deeply committed to diversity, to immigration, to all the things that Liberals have kind of branded themselves with, but who are starting to put their hand up and go, hold on a second. Um, aren't we, like, we're, we're, we're letting, we're, we're inviting all these people into the country, and we don't have houses for them. How is that going to end well for anyone? Um, and and Mike Moffat, who is a, uh, a prof at Western and, and a very good tweeter, um, has been all over this for a long time where he's sort of pointing out the mismatch between the number of people that the federal government is bringing in through its immigration program, through temporary foreign workers, through um, students, you know, student visas, uh, and the number of houses they're building. 
and sort of just asking the question, how is this going to end? Uh, you know, and that is that is a lever that the feds can control, uh, certainly on the you know, on the on the post-secondary side. Post-secondary institutions in this country have gotten, I think, addicted to bringing in foreign students because they can charge them more money. Right. I've see, seen this at UBC where I graduated many, many years, eons ago, um, where the campus has been changed by, uh, you know, this this new investment in foreign students. And look, it's fine. Uh, I think it's great that we bring people from around the world here because they bring their diversity, their energy, their cultural experiences. Um, but we got to have places for them to stay. We got to have places for everyone to stay. And if, you know, if if universities are bringing in thousands of people uh, and building tens of homes, we have a problem. Um, and the same goes for immigration. If we're bringing in 400,000, 500,000 permanent residents every year and we're not building multiples of that in new homes, we're going to have a problem. So, you know, they, the liberals are undermining support for their own value proposition and, and for one of the core foundational beliefs they have about this country with their kind of inattention to the housing file and, and you know getting back to fantasy politics that's why it's interesting that they put sean fraser in there because he was of course the immigration minister before so he of all people should understand the tensions that are being created uh and and the kind of mismatches between the targets we have for for bringing people into this country and the targets we have for building houses and if he can't find a way to solve them if he can't find a way to close that gap he's going to wear it the government's going to wear it and ultimately we're all going to wear it don't you think it's dangerous for progressives in general uh, and specifically uh, the liberal party to overplay the diversity card if you if you're screwed up in terms of not being able to provide enough housing for all the people you're bringing in and you get criticized for it and you should be criticized for it to respond with well you've got a diversity problem uh that's i think um lazy uh, intellectually lazy i think morally it it, it 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 borders on unethical but politically I think it's another piece of live ammunition to the Conservative Party. It is. Um, yeah, you know, there's no question that there are elements within the Conservative Party that are racist, that uh, harbor negative stereotypes towards immigrants. But there's also no question that that's a very small part of it. Um, and, and a big part of the Conservative Party right now is... Uh, pretty much on board with immigration, with diversity, maybe not with multiculturalism and, and things like that. But but they are, this is not the conservative party of 20 years ago, and it is certainly not the Republican Party of Donald Trump. We, it, it does not have that same amount of kind of nativism, of anti-immigration sentiment that, that really does run through the Republican Party. And so to try to play that card um, invites the conservatives to have people like uh, Shiv Majumder, who won the, the by-election here in Calgary Heritage the other day, to stand up and go, you want to talk about diversity? You want to talk about immigration? Happy to have that conversation. And they're going to look like fools. Um, you know, it, so I, it, it reminds me a little bit of, a little bit of the, the uh, barbaric cultural practices hotline stuff that, that the conservatives dragged out in 2015 when they were stale, when they were tired. It was, a, it was a message that they thought played to their base. Uh, they kind of thought they could scare their voters into, into voting and, and getting out. And it had the opposite effect, right? It sort of really contrasted them 
with what Justin Trudeau's liberals were bringing at the time, which was, you know, fresh energy, optimism. Uh, and people just said, no, you know, what? we're done with Harper. We don't need that. And I think if the liberals go too far down this road of, of you know, trying to paint conservatives as, as racist or anti, anti-immigration, the same flip is going to happen. I think a lot of middle-of-the-road voters, especially blue liberals, are going to go, you know what, enough with these guys. Uh, they're done. And, and that, you know, I think it will be tempting for them because it is, you know, as with the barbaric cultural practices stuff, it's, it's the button they know how to push. Um, but the button you know how to push is not always the one that works. I think it's uh, fair to say that um, when a government is overdoing it on any particular button, they appear to be stale. And it's very fair to say that when a government has won three elections in a row and is going for a fourth, stale is not where you want no, to be. No, and, and that was the one of the problems with the cabinet shuffle. Um, you know, I, in an op-ed I wrote, I said that, you know, they want, there's a clear appetite for change out there right now. There was an abacus poll recently that said, I think, 8 out of 10, it was a little higher than that, uh, of respondents want to change. That's very bad for a government, an incumbent government. That is, that is you can hear that, the, you know, uh, you can feel the, the, the Grim Reaper's little stick around your neck with that one. And so for them, they had to give Canadians change. They needed to be the change that Canadians wanted, and they had to do that by really shaking things up, you know, maybe switching out finance minister, uh, making a big change and they didn't do that with the cabinet shuffle they also didn't do it with his staff right so the prime minister has largely the same senior staff he's had for years he has the same chief of staff he's had almost from the beginning which is fine um you know it speaks to katie telford's talents and and the loyalty that she has to him and he has to her but the problem with that is it's really difficult to get new information from people you've been around for a long time right they, they are going to tend to see things the way you see them they're not going to be as good at bringing forth um, threats that are out there as maybe someone from the outside who can say, look, here's where you're weak, here's where you're strong. And so, I, you know, this is, this is a government that, that really kind of is almost embracing its staleness. Um, it's doubling down on stale. And look, Polyev may still find a way to hand it over to them again. You know, there was that tweet the other day about one of the new cabinet ministers saying that she had voted for vaccine mandates. Like, really? You guys want to go back to that stuff again? If they do that, they might they might hand Trudeau a fourth victory. But if Polyev can stay on the cost of living stuff, if he can stay on the housing stuff and stay away from the, the nuttier sort of World Economic Forum anti-vax stuff, it, it's really starting to look... Uh, hard to see how he's not going to win at least a plurality of seats um and you know there was a time where i thought majority was kind of out of play starting to creep into play you know five percent ten percent probability um because as i said it doesn't feel like the government is feeling the heat that is very clearly building underneath it the conservatives had a shot with andrew Scheer, but andrew Scheer dropped the ball the Conservatives had a very good shot with Aaron O'Toole, but in the final weeks of the campaign, Aaron O'Toole dropped the ball. Why does Max Fawcett think Pierre Poliev, during a campaign, a real campaign, not this thing, but a real campaign two years from now, why do you think Pierre Poliev will be able to hang on to the ball? Well, I'm not sure he will. I mean, I think, I think he has shown very... Um dubious ball handling abilities uh let's put it that way he he is tempted to go to the dark place in the same way that Shear was he's more polished than andrew Shear. he's smarter than andrew Shear. um 
but he has the same bad instincts around things as Andrew Shear does. Um, I think part of why I think his odds are better is because there's just been more time. Uh, you know, if this was Polyev in 2019, no chance, no chance. Um, but the conservative or the liberals, excuse me, they keep wounding themselves unnecessarily. Uh, you know, Freeland with that video the other day from PEI, which, yes, was edited selectively, but the long version of the video was not much better. Um, Trudeau with his comments, the cabinet shuffle, they, ju- they just keep missing. Um, and so at some point, you know, if you leave the net open long enough, your opponent is going to find a way to score, even if they trip on the way down the down the ice. I think if they had left O'Toole alone and let him run a second time, he would be crushing it, right? He would be, I think, you know, probably at 40% right now, uh, pretty close to majority territory, but they didn't. And so it's going to be a little harder for them. But it's really a question of discipline. Um, can Polyev discipline himself enough to stay away from the dark place, to not be tempted by the bad ideas um, uh, and and kind of do damage to himself? And I think, you know, if there's one saving grace or shining light for the, for the liberals, it's that Trump appears to be on path to be the Republican nominee in 2024. And he, who knows, he might win. Um, the more that becomes a, a problem in the eyes of Canadians, I think the less likely they are going to want to go down the road of someone who seems Trumpy, right? So if I was Polyev's campaign team, and, and boy, that would be a funny picture, but um, I would just be doing everything I could to, to take the Trumpiness out of him, right? Um, to make him as soft and uh, malleable and, 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 you know, wear down the edges as much as possible. But I think he has a bunch of people around him who kind of like Donald Trump and and might be tempted to go down that road. So, you know, all hope is not lost for the liberals, not because they're going to put the puck in the net, but because Polyev might find a way to do it again. Since the liberals are 100% committed to the carbon tax, why are they so poor at defending it? Oh, that's a that's an old wound for me. Yeah, I mean, look, I've been... I've been on the record critical of them for a while now about the mismatch between the policy, which is good, ambitious, smart, and the communications around it, which has just been basically since the beginning disastrous. Um, I think part of it is they didn't think they had to defend it as much as they do. I think their assumption was if they win an election with the carbon tax on the ballot, that's it. And look, as as the LGBTQ community is is unfortunately discovering right now with all this trans nonsense, the fight is never over uh, on a lot of this stuff. And and if you show weakness, the the people who don't agree with an issue or don't agree with the policy will find a way to to relitigate it. Um, you know, part of it is they didn't they didn't um, do a good sales job on it in terms of helping people understand how it works. There's still people, lots of people, probably a majority of people who don't understand how the rebate works who don't understand how the carbon tax works, who say, well, if you're giving me back my money, what's, the, what's even the point of having a carbon tax? They, they really should have done a better job of backselling. And, and I think oftentimes they relied on economists and experts to backsell it. They should have relied on hockey players and actors and people who have more, first of all, more ability to communicate, but, but also more sort of credibility and cachet with the non-expert crowd to try to sell the message for them. And and I just think they didn't do it well. And then the rebates are 
a huge problem. Um, you know, first they went out as a, as a line item on your on your income taxes. A lot of people don't do their own income taxes and have t- tax preparers who weren't going to tell them about it. Um, it wasn't marked clearly. It was, you know, climate action incentive rebate, not carbon tax rebate. So people are like, what's a climate action incentive? And then even now, uh, you know, they finally switched it over to direct deposit. But I got my most recent rebate in July, and it said CAI rebate. Now, if you don't know what the CAI is, you don't know what that is. You're like, great, someone put money in my account. Uh, you know, I'm not going to ask questions. But it, it just the, – the branding, the messaging has been uh, almost um, – it's almost malpractice at this point. Um, you know, if it had been me, if I had had my druthers – and the funny thing is they – they watched it roll out in Alberta. They could have learned the lessons there, and there were lots of lessons that people like me could have told them. You send people checks, physical checks, with your name on it, your picture on it. I don't care what it is. You get shameless. You, you make people go to the bank and deposit the check, understanding who it came from and why it's being sent to you. Is that less efficient? Absolutely. Would it cost more to administer? Totally. Would some people not get their checks or, or lose their checks? Probably. Sure. It doesn't matter. It would it would still be a more effective political way uh, to to spread understanding about the program than what they've done. And here's the thing. The, the, the thing that matters most is not the efficiency or or sort of uh, cost effectiveness of the program. It's the fact that it sticks around. Right. If you if you implement a very efficient carbon tax system that pleases the economists, and it gets voted out and repealed, you've accomplished nothing, right? What matters is policy durability. And I think, you know, in hindsight, if they could go down the road the Americans are going with, with um, you know, sort of industrial rebates, industrial incentives, uh, rather than a consumer-oriented one, they probably would want to do that because that, I think, is going to prove to be way more durable and way less prone to the sort of political campaigning uh, that the carbon tax has been. Max Fawcett, the Conservatives right now, you mentioned the abacus poll, substantially ahead of the Liberals. Is that because the Liberals are doing a lot of things wrong, making mistakes, uh, wounding themselves, as you alluded to a few moments ago? Is that differential, which is almost double digits now, is it primarily what the Liberals are doing, or is it something that the Conservatives are doing that maybe Liberal supporters just aren't getting? I think it's about 20-80. So 20% what the Conservatives are doing, 80% what the Liberals are, Liberals are doing, mixed in with the fact that it's summer. So, um, you know, uh, summer polls are always dangerous um, just because people aren't really paying attention um, and, and the temperature is a little lower. Um, and part of it because it's an incumbent government. Uh, and so the, the frame right now is you know, do you like this government? Is this government doing a good job? And, and clearly the answer is not really. Um, I think, you know, if we get closer to a campaign and certainly if we get into a campaign, the liberals will be able to switch that frame. They'll be able to switch the frame to, do you want this guy, this guy being Pierre Polyev, to be in charge of the levers of power? And I think when that frame gets activated, the numbers will tighten up a bit. It's the exact same as it, as it was with O'Toole. It's pretty similar to the way it was, um, you know, well, post-blackface with Sheert. The, the hypothetical, you know, do we want this current government around tends to be a little more favorable to the opposition than the do we want these guys in charge uh, polling frame. So I think once the liberals, you know, get a little more uh, focused and centered, 
if that's if that's possible for them right now, then they will they will turn that frame around, and I think things will tighten up. And I think, you know, sorry NDP voters, as as has been the case all along, that vote will start to disappear. Right? I think it's very easy to say you'll vote NDP in the summer of 2023 when there's not an election. I think when there's an election in the offing and the choice really boils down to Justin Trudeau or Pierre Polyev, a lot of NDP voters will go, okay, fine, liberal, you know, reluctantly, uh, unenthusiastically, but, but they'll do it. And look, an unenthusiastic vote counts exactly the same as an enthusiastic one. So if I was the liberals, I wouldn't be panicking, but I would be deadly serious about the fact that they can't coast here. Um, you know, I do think if they keep doing what they're doing now straight up into the into the voting day, they'll lose. Um, you know, Polyev will have 160, 170, 155, something in that neighborhood of seats. And, you know, then we get into that messy thing of can they can they find a partner? Can they form a minority government? Um, but the liberals should be under no illusions that they're doing a good job right now. And, and you know, I don't think a lot of them are. I don't understand why there's this controversy about whether or not the Conservatives can find a partner. Uh, there's this thing called a Bloc Québécois, which is going to have a, a mountain of seats in Quebec. There's absolutely no doubt about that. One reason isn't because of the Liberals' um, you know, feebleness in, in the province of Quebec, which is basically home territory for them, but it's because the Conservatives are absolutely useless in Quebec, and the Bleu Québécois get the Conservative vote. So the idea that if the Conservatives need a partner, the idea that the Bleu Québécois will not be amenable, will not be able to negotiate something with them, I think it's absolutely nonsense. I think the Bleu Québécois has a price, and I think the Conservative Party will be totally prepared to meet their price in order to form government, don't you? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I think, you know, if, if Conservative plus Bloc Québécois equals 170, um, then they're in business, right? I don't, like you said, I, I think more than anything, the Bloc Québécois are opportunists and, you know, want to get concessions for Quebec and for sovereignty. And so they don't really care who they're dealing with. I think they probably prefer the Conservatives on, on a lot of levels because the Conservatives don't really threaten them uh, electorally. So, you know, Bloc Québécois plus Conservative equals 170, they're off to the races. Um, the real sticky part is if it's... You know, if the Conservatives win 155, the Liberals win 145, but the big the big sort of third place party is the NDP and Liberal plus NDP equals 170, then we get into real kind of sticky territory. Um, and I, you know, for the sake of of people not losing faith in democracy, for, you know, the sake of not having conspiracy theories run rampant, you know, I, I really don't think we need our own version of what's happening in the United States with with conservatives kind of questioning the the integrity of the electoral system and the democratic process. So it would be better if that didn't happen. But, you know, the votes will fall where they fall. Max Foster, thank you, as always. Appreciate your time. And I really appreciate your columns in the National Observer. Thank you, Max. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson. Twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press and every day at criermedia.co.